All right. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome you all to uh, this, to Sean Gaffney's thesis theater. Uh, he's recently finished his thesis on Hidden Contact, the Unremarkable Evidence of Britonic and Latin Effects on English, uh, which has been uh, uh, a great thing for me to, me to supervise and watch come together. Uh, it's um, uh, a really, a really interesting work on uh, all sorts of things coming together in um, Britain in the roughly the years 400 to 600. And we're gonna see uh, how this all fits together uh, through kind of a Q&A format with then some questions from the uh, audience at the end. So uh, Sean was uh, interested in approaching this from a kind of an interdisciplinary perspective. There's linguistics, there's archeology, span there's history, there's all sorts of things uh, that he's bringing to this. Uh, and he did all this in the middle of, uh, of taking care of a two-year-old and playing with trucks with the two-year-old. So uh, it's a remarkable job all around and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thesis. So uh, well done, Sean. Thank you. Uh, all right, so just to, to get us all started here, um, your thesis, the, the linguistic background of your thesis, there's basically three main languages and that's what's in the title, right? The, the evidence of Britonic and Latin effects on English. Uh, so, uh, Britonic, Latin, and English. Let's start off with Britonic, uh, which is maybe going to be the least familiar of these these three languages to people. Can you tell us a little bit about what Britonic is as a language and what what it's doing, what its background is here? Yes. So, uh, thank you for coming, everybody. Um, so, Britonic is a Celtic language. So, if we think of Indo-European. Um, branching off and and sort of giving rise to several different language uh, groups, we see languages that are like the uh, Romance or the Italic languages, which include Latin and French and Spanish, and then we have you know others that have Sanskrit and Russian, Greek, um, Germanic, all of these different areas. One of those branches is the Celtic languages. Um, and that branch itself sort of splits off into a few different groups, some of which people may have heard of. So one group, one of those branches ends up going, um, being what we sort of call continental Celtic, and it includes Gaulish, which is you know one of the groups that the Romans encountered um, on the continent of Europe. And then there's another branch that becomes uh, insular Celtic. So these are the languages that are found mostly um, on the islands of Britain and Ireland. Um, one of those became um, the languages that we think of as Old Irish um, and then Irish. Um, and the other sort of branch became um, these languages that we're sort of talking about now that I'm looking at. They include um, Welsh, which people have probably heard of, um, Cornish, um, and Breton, as well as a, a long extinct language named probably Cumbrian or something like that. So the Welsh and Cumbrian group um, are probably a little bit more related. And these are mostly kind of what we think of as, as, um, as being related to Britonic. So it's a Celtic language spoken throughout parts of Britain, um, starting, you know, several centuries um, BC, um, and then with a group of people occupying that area up until Romans came in. Um, so it's most, it's probably most similar to something like Welsh. We can kind of think of it as a Celtic language in that 
uh, vein only. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, thank you. And so the uh, second language that you're, so you mentioned in your thesis is Latin, which I expect most people have, have heard of, but it's maybe a little bit less obvious what its uh, role in, in, in sort of the time and place that you're studying is. So what's the what's the historical context here? How does how does Latin fit into the, the linguistic landscape of, of, of Britain in, in this time period? So the the Roman Empire had been um, spreading throughout you know its history um, around um, 100 so BC. We already see evidence of Roman interest in um, the 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 islands of, of Ireland and Britain. Um, we see coins starting to show up. We see evidence of sort of imports. Um, we have some sort of data collect that was sort of collected by the Romans about this area. And over the next century, they showed increased interest. And by around 40 AD, they invaded um, Britain, basically. They um, sent legions. And they, they, over the next four centuries, expanded across Britain and basically sort of took over and settled the, the, the bulk of the island with resistance um, from the Britons for a good portion of this and to the point that there were areas that the Romans were constantly sort of vying for. And that's, you know, the sort of reasons that we have things like Hadrian's Wall. Um, but so Romans had occupied, um, or had basically sort of taken over and occupied the bulk of Britain, um, and then settled it in a very permanent way. They had, you know, had been there for 400 years and built up a very, you know, con considerable infrastructure, and you know, had sort of Romanized it in a way. Though there's arguments as to the extent to which they actually were successful in Romanizing it. Um, but so this language, which is the sort of dominant language of the Roman Empire, it's sort of synonymous with Roman identity in many ways. Um, it's the language of the administration of um, different aspects of Roman life. It's hard to imagine that they could be there without bringing a considerable influence um, from Lat Latin um, into the area that um, was once purely Britonic. Um, and which would ultimately also include uh, an overlap of West Germanic languages. And so, this, sorry, the last sort of point about the Romans is that 400 years of Roman occupation, one would expect a significant amount of Latin. Um, the Roman administration used Latin, Roman um, sort of commerce, these different areas were more likely to use Latin and it was the the language of the Roman identity in a way for many people. Um, so especially in the West, um, Latin was going to be how you sort of represented yourself, I think, as as being a Roman. And so that is also a contributing factor when we sort of look at well, what evidence do we have for these languages? We will ultimately look and find evidence for inscriptions and writing on all different things, um, but we also sort of have to keep in mind um, as much as we can um, the likelihood of Latin being the, a dominant language in an area that has been so long occupied by Romans. Um, 
So that's why Latin comes into play here because it's one of the two sort of main languages that these incomers, newcomers, um, are going to encounter. Yeah, um, which that, that that's the that's the sort of the next step in all of this is what's the, that's your third language, right? Is is English. Uh, so, yeah, how does that how does that come into the uh, what what's going on with that? Um, so so what happens is, and I think it needs a little bit of um, additional sort of explanation. So we know that the Britons were there, then we know the Romans were there, and then around 400 A.D., um, someplace in the fifth century. Um, West Germanic invaders, settlers, people um, started coming in from Northern Europe. So they start to sort of move in, especially to the eastern part of um, Britain, um, landing, taking over areas, um, settling and or fighting. Um, and they speak this Germanic language that ultimately we, we sort of recognize as, you know, those sort of early pre-Old English, something like that. Um, but what we have to figure out, um, one, what they were speaking, and two, what was happening in the area when they got there? Because we have this Britain, this population of Britons, we have this population of Latin-speaking Roman people, um, and then we have this West Germanic language come in. And it's not entirely clear what people were speaking when. Um, there's evidence that we can draw to argue for a number of different things, um, but it looks like um, you have a, a population of Britons speaking their language, you have a population of people speaking um, Latin, and there's some mixing, and so there's places that there's probably multi or bilingualism, multilingualism maybe, um, and we try to figure out, so it's, as much as we can, who was speaking what, where, so that when these new people come in, we can see what, what were they being exposed to and what were they exposing themselves to. Um, so these West Germanic settlers come in, and then a few centuries later, English starts to come out um, with some features that are a little bit different than just pure West Germanic. Um, so we know they had had some contact, or it's likely they had some contact that affected these languages. Um, so the goal is to figure out, you know, what these West Germanic people encountered and how those encounters affected English as we know it today. Um, so those are the three parts that come together in this. And unfortunately, um, it's like a, a jigsaw puzzle where we're missing a lot of pieces. Um, so the most we can really do sometimes is argue that a piece is more likely to be useful here or there or helps us identify something. Um, we can't really be certain. There's always, there's often new evidence that comes out that shifts the, our view a little bit here and there. Um, but some people have put forth some pretty decent ideas and ideas that are probably more falsifiable in a way. So, some of the newer sort of theories allow us a better chance in the long run of sort of maybe identifying whether or not they can be kept or not. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little away. I've been reading about falsification lately, so. Um. <laughs> well, 
so you mentioned there that you know there that some of this has a effect, you know, because obviously English ends up being very widely spoken in Britain, and you talk about some of the effects that that these languages may have had. So leaving aside place names for the moment, we'll come back to that because that's a really big part of your thesis. But sort of leaving aside that for for the moment. Um, what are what are some of the the traces or the ways that these languages did or did not um, affect English, and, and why is why is that interesting? So this so this is um, the languages affected English in a number of possible ways. Some of them are we're still sort of looking at as as probabilities. Maybe um, there's a decent chance that this is the reason or part of a contributing cause to why English does a certain thing. Um, so they affected English um, sort of across the board. Um, there's phonological effects in English. So there's certain um, sounds in say um, our consonant or um, vowel systems that may have emerged because of long contact with the language that had a slightly different vowel or consonant system. And then slowly they got sort of, um, they ended up being used in English. I'm not sure the best way of absorbed or something like that, but so that the consonant system in English now or by Old English, Middle English, um, was slightly different than just pure West Germanic or what we would expect from West Germanic. Um, so contact with the Britons or the Romans and their unique um, vowel system can affect English's vowel system over time. Um, similarly, we see this in the structure of, of um, the words themselves or the order of the words. So in either uh, morphology or syntax, things like that, um, these changes can take place. You have these two or three different cultures and languages um, overlapping each other for long enough and things start to move from one language to the other. So um, there's probably about 10 areas that people look at um, have been arguing um, that these are pieces of evidence for early contact between these languages. So um, one of them that still comes up um, is English's sort of um, interesting verb to be. So people have been arguing um, about how that emerged um, over time. Um, the fact that we have, you know, sort of am, is, are, um, and then we have to be and was and all of these different, these different forms. Um, there's some evidence that early Germanic may have done something like this, or at least there are some scholars that suggest that. And then um, there's also evidence, um, we also know that some of the Celtic languages had a sort of different um, forms of the verb to be that we may have sort of been affected by. Uh, I'm not going to sort of try to argue the case either way. I don't. I actually. So a lot of this data I ended up not using in my paper because it's been covered a lot by other people. Um, so I basically sort of collected a representative example set of examples of these. But that's one type. Another is um, in some dialects of English when we do a comparative, they say something like bigger nor him as opposed to what I would say in my dialect bigger than him. Um, so these types of 
these instances show up in other dialects of English or um, across a variety of different areas. Um, so people have collected those and, and sort of are looking at them. Um, the other thing that I looked at a little bit more specifically are just words that get sort of shifted from probably um, this early or this Britonic or um, the languages of the Britons into English. Um, there are not a lot of these words, but that's okay. Um, sort of according to how we think of how language contact works and the evidence that we have for other language contact, you don't need a lot of vocabulary to suggest that there could have been a connection. The vocabulary is not a necessary piece of um, language contact. It's just sort of, it helps us identify things. So we started, uh, or English started sort of getting words from The language of the Britons early on. Um, some of them show up fairly early and then they start to sort of filter in over the next few um, centuries from um, Old to Middle English. Um, a lot of them are words that I am completely unfamiliar with in my dialect and probably I think most people are, uh, especially if it's your, you're speaking sort of a standard American dialect. Um, but so that's another thing, um, so that's another piece of sort of evidence of this sort of um, contact. I feel like I'm going away with, I'm, I'm losing track of my own, my own train of thought here. Um, no, it's a, that's a, that gives us sort of a yeah, basic sort of, you know, like linguistic what. And then one of the things you're sort of trying to do is think about, I mean, you mentioned this actually a little bit, so maybe maybe I'm asking you to repeat yourself a little bit, but, but um, the, the kind of the, um, you know, there's there's a linguistic what, and then there's the, you know, you're trying to think about, okay, what's this like on the ground? And what's, you know, what were, what were the social dynamics or whatever that were going on uh, that led to these sort of different uh, kinds of contact? You know, you have quite a bit on, um, you know, and your thesis on sort of ideas of, of uh, you know, the sociolinguistics of language contact and, and things like that. So maybe, maybe, so how do we move from sort of, okay, you know, there's some verbs and there's some, some, some loan words and there's some dialect words and, um, I think that what how do we what what are you how do you move from that to the to the sort of social reality? So I think this is um, this is where I think it gets kind of more fun in a way. You get to sort of imagine what the world would have been like. Um, and this is part of why I really enjoy these looking back because it's a lot of imagination. Um, so you have different groups um, occupying adjacent or overlapping areas and there's different um, power structures there's different reasons that people are higher or lower in sort of a hierarchy if we think of it that way um, so people are often motivated to learn other languages or are forced to learn other languages depending on the situation so you might have a group that comes in um, and, you know, seems to be more successful at um, killing and spreading than the people are at defending themselves, and they sort of gain power. Now, this power, these powerful people, um, if, if you're living near them, it benefits you to speak their language, or maybe they force you to speak their language. So we have English speakers, um, and we have um, speakers of um, the Britonic language. 
Um, so they, the Britonic language, sorry, this is sort of a long explanation to try to make sense of it. Um, so they decide, okay, we're going to learn English. And they start to learn English. Um, they're using it. But every once in a while, there is some feature that English is missing um, that they have in their language, perhaps, um, that they start to introduce into English. And after some amount of time, multiple people doing this, these features can start of get can sort of get added into English. Um, and so it wasn't a deliberate thing necessarily. It just slowly sort of evolves such that English all of a sudden has this feature that we think of as as maybe being Britonic or Celtic, um, but now English is doing it. Um, and the new English speakers who are native English speakers and maybe monolingual or something start to do that too because the people around them are doing it. And now it's sort of in English. Um, Similarly, along the same lines, this idea of the sort of imperfect learning, English speakers might decide, okay, well, let's learn the language of the people that we're bossing around all the time. Um, and so they start to learn Britonic. They learn elements of Britonic um, that ended up, they might end up starting to use in English um, for whatever reason. Maybe they think that there's a lack of this feature in English or it's an accident, um, but Along the same lines, multiple people do it. These, these features start to get sort of pulled into English and then the next generation learns them. And now you have a bunch of people speaking English with these new features. Um, so that's how a lot of these features can get sort of um, pushed or pulled into English or the reverse. It, it doesn't have to be in that direction. Um, in this case, this is what we're, we're looking at. Um, similarly, um, there are features that you can't sort of help but um, possibly introduce, and these are the phonological ones. And no matter how much people try to learn a new language, there's often going to be um, sounds that they're not good at. And those sounds can sort of get, um, start to be used in the new language because of all of these second language speakers are using them. And then eventually that sound becomes sort of a norm in, in that language. So that's how some of these phonological features can get pulled in. And then the last thing um, is that sometimes vocabulary gets pulled in. We often think of vocabulary as being the, if I come along and you have an object I've never seen before, then I'm more likely to use your word for it than try to invent my own. Um, so we think of it as having to do with sort of new items, new technologies, features, um, and that, there's evidence that that happens. Um, we rarely, we often, we're skeptical, many people are skeptical about the idea that common items will sort of get pulled in. Like, yeah, I, that's your word for hand, but I have a word for hand, why would I, why would I switch? But that can still happen. Um, there's no actual rule as to how this works. So there's no, 100% um, concrete type of thing. There's, you can always find examples in different languages of the things that we thought were impossible when it comes to loan words and in contact and things like that. That's what's pretty interesting about it too. You always think there's no way you're gonna do that thing. That's impossible. That's theoretically impossible. Then you can find a language where they did, totally did it. Um, so, we have these words in uh, English that come from, um, from the language of the Britons. Um, a few of them are words that we would maybe expect. There's a one or two sort of geological features that um, it's, 
possible that the the West Germanic people hadn't seen before, so they might adopt that word. And then there's also words that um, who knows why you know a new word for rock um, came in. And then there's a few other things, um, a few types of words for sort of uh, technologies or things like that um, that have have shifted in. Um, ultimately, it comes down to um, one group, but two groups come in contact, and for whatever reason, um, they start to introduce new features into each other's languages. It can be accidental, it can be deliberate, um, but slowly the languages change in sometimes predictable ways, uh, or predictable isn't the best word. There's certain things that are more likely to happen or less likely to happen, but ultimately, just about anything can happen. But we do know enough about it, and there is enough evidence that when we see certain features, we can kind of say, well, this is probably what happened. Um, it's probably a sort of more dominant group um, occupying the space with this other group, um, and this other group started to pick up, trying to pick up the dominant language. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of like the, the a linguistic perspective on, on this whole matter. Um, so one of the things you do is you don't try and look at it just from one strictly linguistic perspective. You, try, you, you take language, you also review some of the archaeological arguments, some of the historical argument, insofar as there is historical evidence um, uh, and things like that. So um, how does that, how does this linguistic picture that you just kind of sketched out for us relate to the, maybe especially the archaeological evidence, but also insofar as we, we have historical sources, the, the archaeological historical, you know, uh, view of, or, or debates or whatever of how, how, how these things uh, developed and unfolded. So I think we're, um, in some ways, we're lucky. The evidence from textual sources and archaeological sources um, supports some of the ideas that the language and linguistic studies um, put forth. And I don't think that there's anything that truly undermines um, or sort of refutes these ideas. So textually, we... Um, we don't get a lot from texts. We sort of see uh, we see the the movement maybe of some of um, or we have a record of so the movement of some of the sort of um, West Germanic uh, people as they go through. We have battles and things like that over the years that correspond with kind of the general idea of the way we think. Um, Sort of occupation and settlement took place, um, and some references here and there to um, the Britons and what happened to them. Those get a little um, tricky. Um, sometimes it's we drove them off. Sometimes it's we wiped them out. Um, and that that stuff gets hard to say for sure what happened um, because it's you're looking at it through the lens of the victor, and you're also um, sometimes the translations are not entirely clear, um, or, or our ability to translate is not entirely clear when they use a certain verb that could be wiped out or drove off or something like that. Um, but then we come to the archaeological data, and that, um, it doesn't really undermine anything, but it also has its own level of uh, trickiness, I guess. Um, we, we can certainly tell, so if we think of... Um, Britain is having sort of the Roman and Britons in it. Um, 
there are places that we think of as sort of more Britain, uh, more, um, trying to think of how to say it, um, more Britonic. Um, I don't know if I can use that as an adjective like that. Um, and areas that are more Roman. Um, and we, we can sort of look at the, at the incoming vocabulary that we have over the years um, that seems to come through um, um, Britonic and it seems to be coming through certain regions, um, the dialects there. So we can start to make this map where we kind of think of um, the Britons as occupying the west and the north for a longer period than elsewhere. And we also know that places like Wales where it um, took a lot longer for the British to, uh, sorry, for the sort of the, what ultimately became the sort of English to sort of take over. Um, and then we have archeological data that sort of supports some of these ideas. Um, you can look at the, the burial patterns, you can look at settlement patterns, you can look at um, where you find certain types of inscriptions, all of these different features. Um, and it sort of maps onto this area in a, in a similar way. Um, but there's also a huge problem with the archeology. span And it's not a problem that sort of refutes these ideas, but it's a problem of, um, that we don't yet understand enough, I think, about it. So one of the archeology, so what happens is the British, or sorry, rather the Romans around the beginning of the fifth century, um, Roman power in Britain sort of, I don't want to say collapses, but sort of diminishes because of problems elsewhere in the empire. Um, the Britons are sort of left to fend for themselves or the Romano-British, the people that are living there that are still sort of consider themselves Roman citizens or Romans um, rather, um, don't have the same power structure. So things start to go awry in the sense that it looks like there's a less import or a collapse in the imports. Um, Roman coins stop being made, Roman pottery ends. Um, and this is eventually when the West Germanic people start to come in. And, and so you see, we sort of think of it or have talked about it in the past, as like, you know, they're sort of being overrun and it's collapsing. Um, what some scholars have pointed out is that we just don't necessarily know how to look at the archeological data from those periods. We had nice convenient Roman things, Roman coins, Roman pottery, and we can look at it and it's always easy, maybe not always easy, but you can look at it and you can recognize it. And then those stop and we don't have these convenient items anymore to use to identify things. So the first thought is, oh, things stopped. Everything must've stopped, must've collapsed or something like that. And now people are looking at it and saying, well, maybe it's more complicated than that, because it's always more complicated than that. Um, maybe certain things switched and we are just not used to finding the new items, or maybe we don't recognize what, what these new items are yet. Um, maybe they're more perishable. All these other features, factors can come into play. Um, so we have to be very careful with using that type of data. Um, and some of the diagnostic things that people have used in the in the past have been sort of re-examined. Just because a brooch looks a certain way and it's moved through, maybe you find it at um, later and later burials across Britain, you can't necessarily say, well, those people were moving there. Um, the style of brooch or something like that is independent of the people. It's the same thing that the people who've done archaeology before have heard that pots aren't people. Um, 
ideas can move independent of the people, so you can't always be sure that uh, an item is representative of whoever, whoever it is that you're trying to sort of follow along. Um, but that aside, there is a lot of um, sort of decent evidence to support this idea that um, West Germanic people came in, they overlapped in many ways with the Britons, um, and that there were still areas that were a little bit more distinctly one or the other in places, especially um, in the West and North, where we sort of have a, think there was a stronger uh, Britonic uh, presence. Um, there are a few other parts to that as well. Um, people have studied skeletons um, and looked at sort of average heights. They've looked at different types of burials and whether or not they are associated with um, sort of military figures or fighters, uh, all of these different features. Um, but the sum of all of this sort of data um, sort of is in accord with what we see from the linguistic and language materials. A very, a very good summary of some very, very complicated. Uh, um, yeah, hopefully, uh, I, I realize uh, I. Uh, yeah. this, um, the the uh, I mean this this is I think what part of part of why this is such a fun area why 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 it was fun to watch you do all the work of having to figure out how to put the archaeology and the um, uh, uh, and the linguistics and then this group together. Um, so the other thing you bring into that, right? You've got you've got uh, these these various factors, this picture that's kind of emerging. So you then uh, look sort of really specially um, uh, in, a, in a large part of your thesis at, at, at place names. So before we get to your specific case studies, um, generally speaking, what what like what is what do you say about place names? What are what are the you know what why are they useful and why are they why are they why are they challenging? What's sort of you know specially problematic, but also advantageous about taking a look at them? So uh, they are useful because they give us an idea to some extent as to who is probably in a certain area. Only this comes with its own set of caveats that a place name that is say in Britonic that says like, hey, the Britons live here. Um, there's none that are that, that clear, though some come close. Um, that is useful for sort of demonstrating at some point the Britons lived there. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that they stayed there. Somebody else could have moved in on top of them and kept the name. Um, and that won't necessarily be obvious to us when we know just the place name. Um, so in a way, the place names can give us a good idea of who was where and maybe give some ideas about when. There's other ways of sort of dating or at least getting a general idea about when these names um, were either in use or coined, um, though they're they're relative to one another generally. Um, sorry, I lost track of where I was going with that. Um, so they so they help us identify who may have been where, um, what groups, what languages are being spoken to some extent. But there's always a risk that there's these other facts features that you have to sort of take into account. But it generally gives us the ability to look at areas and see um, the bulk of, or see you know, if we can count or, or some way figure out how many um, or the density of place names with certain languages. We start to 
sort of suggest that there are more, say, Britons in this area. There are more um, Germanic people in this area. There are more Norse. Um, this area was originally Roman or something like that. Um, and so when we look at this data across Great Britain, we see, at least where I looked, a lot of places that still had Britonic um, names, and there was still evidence um, from other sources, and both linguistic and from archaeological history, that there were Brit Britons there. Um, so we can look at this data, get general ideas of where there may have been different um, population densities of people, um, and use that to help us sort of understand who was living in certain areas and, and when contact may have been sort of occurring and what the consequences of that contact might have been. Um, we see places that are in one language but are identifying the people in a certain town or area rather as being from a different culture. So you can get British, you can get uh, an area that was most likely Britonic people, um, where British people, or sorry, sort of West Germanic or Anglo-Saxon, um, came along and said, oh, that's the, that's the town of the Britons. Um, and so again, we don't know how long it remained the town of the Britons, but we, we can say, well, here is a, is a Old English place name stating that that was a, a Britonic or Brit, a place of the Britons. Um, so there's a lot of different sort of ways of, of sort of having to be careful when looking at this, but a lot of sort of data out there suggesting some sort of um, patterns. Yeah, um, so this might, you, you've, got, you've already kind of answered actually some of what my next question was going to be, but um, uh, basically you've got, you've got two, two specific uh, uh, um, uh, areas that you end up uh, looking at in detail as kind of special case studies. Gloucestershire and uh, Lancashire. Um, do you want to maybe sketch a little bit about, you know, kind of what these places are, uh, what's interesting about these regions in terms of their place names and what, what they can, what we, and, and I mean, you've, we've already heard a little bit of what we can learn from them, but maybe, maybe I'll yeah, elaborate that on, on that. So, um, so yeah, I looked at these two different places. Um, I was a little bit limited. A, a third place would have been useful and was also what you suggested. Um, but there, I couldn't find any place where the data was out there in a way that was sort of more manageable. Um, but so we can think of, let's see, uh, Gloucestershire is, I don't know if you can see, if I point at this map here. Um, no, probably not. Um, well, uh, down in the, uh, I, can, I can see, I can see your cursor at least. I don't know if uh, anyone everyone else can. Uh, down in the south, um, we have Gloucestershire, which was um, originally sort of um, occupied by the Romans. Um, there were several Roman sort of settlements, fairly um, decent in size, I think. Um, and then, you know, but, but also still had a Britonic presence. And then eventually the West Germanic people sort of moved in. Um, we can look at the place name data and see there's a few remaining Latin place names. Um, there are sort of more, there are some Britonic place names, uh, but there's generally, it seems to be a slightly, um, 
and the, but there's also a significant amount of um, sort of old English place names. And some of these are like very clear. There's, um, what I've also sort of neglected is there's a lot of place names that are a mixture. Um, it'll be um, a Britonic word and an old English word combined. Um, and there's, so there's all types of combinations of these things and you can see places where they've combined elements. You can see places where the elements may have been replaced with the word that would be appropriate in a different language um, because we have documents that cover some of these places um, over a long time and we can watch the place names change. I sort of neglected that, that, that part of this. Um, but if you look at that area, it seems like, um, you look at the place names, it seems like it's a sort of a good example of a place for the Roman occupation with a Britonic group. And then these Germanic um, people came in um, and started naming places as well. Um, fairly early on, um, probably around the sixth and seventh century. Um, can't remember any representative examples from there. Um, it's also was, was sort of interesting because it's at the edge of, or it's very close to a plate, the sort of um, Devon and um, sort of Welsh occupied areas that remained resistant a lot longer. Um, and so there's also features that we have to pay attention to there that sometimes if uh, a group is coming in and they are not afraid of the people around them, they don't really care what the names are gonna be. Um, but if they are sort of coming in and they are concerned that the, the culture nearby is sort of um, overly Celtic or something not Roman, um, they might be more concerned about the maintaining a sort of um, strong presence there and eliminating any evidence that these people could be related to the others. So you have to take this type of thing into account as best you can. Often that is just mentioning that that could be a possibility. It's hard to, at least um, from what I saw, it would be hard to really demonstrate um, clear patterns of that. Um, so that's Gloucestershire. Um, I'm, gonna sh I'm gonna shift up. Uh, so if we shift up um, uh, to Lancashire, I apologize about my pronunciation. A lot of these places have different pronunciations for, in New England that are kind of close. Um, so I'm always going back and forth trying to remember what's appropriate. Um, but so you have this uh, this area further north, further away from sort of maybe the locus of um, both Roman and um, ultimately Germanic settlement. And you see uh, more Britonic place names um, sort of a general, um, and the names are varied a little bit too, that I, I think there's probably um, slightly more, and this is not a statistical analysis, this is just me sort of musing on what I've done. Um, um, place names that vary a little bit more, um, it's not just the same repetition of like the something hill, the something marsh, the something river, um, but instead, the, these other other combinations um, that just show a little bit more variation in what's happening. Um, 
And there's evidence that this area remained sort of slightly more independent for slightly longer, um, which makes sense given its sort of distance from, like I said, the sort of center of power. Um, it's, it's also in a slightly different region. Um, the, the geography begins to change. It's in the area that's sort of more, the sort of highland, the area that we're thinking of um, the other side of that Roman, non-Roman divide. Um, so it had, you know, it shows these different features of, of sort of language use. And it's also closer to sort of in a way where we think of some of these other um, vocabulary items and things coming in later on um, through dialects that are more northern things like that. Um, so you've got these two place areas, these representative case studies of sort of things on the western part of the island, one further north, slightly further away from um, early occupation, and you see small differences in the sort of naming patterns, things like that. Um, it is not uh, it's not sort of statistically, uh, there were no statistics run on it. So, um, and it wasn't an exhaustive study. Um, there were some places that couldn't necessarily be identified, um, things like that. So it's sort of the first part of what one would do, I think, to decide this is worth doing a more exhaustive study. Um, but generally it gives us an idea of one, there's still leftover Roman place names. Two, there's a significant amount of places um, that show evidence of Britonic presence. Um, and three, there's definitely uh, places that have sort of an overlap of cultures or suggest an overlap because of the sort of naming that uses elements of different languages, things like that. Um, so it's not a simple situation where you've just got one group or another group. Um, and you see changes over time, and you see changes uh, or differences if you look closer within one of those um, um, areas, you can start to see that there's certain um, sort of smaller areas that are going to be more densely or less densely populated by certain groups. Um, but that gets uh, away from what I have the ability or time to sort of look at. Okay. Thank you. Um, so yeah, that's kind of then I think brings us pretty much full circle to kind of you know the what you what you did um, what you did in your thesis. Um, so that's kind of the end. That's you know we've got about forty five minutes here that we've run. So I think it might be a good moment to then now switch in to see what the what the people in the audience have in terms of questions. So a few questions have already come in uh, while you were talking. Um, so I guess I can just um, sort of feed those on to you so people can hear you know, hear this. Um, so while Sparrow has a, <laughs> I don't know if this is a question you want to try and answer, uh, uh, asking, does Pictish relate to Brythonic slash Cumbrian? Um, so yes, I mean, I think it does. It's only recently that I've been learning a little bit more about um, Pictish, or sort of, I've always sort of known of its existence, but it seems like there's a few scholars recently that have been working on it more. Um, oh, you know, I made notes for myself, and Pictish was in the original source, and I took it out um, because I thought, oh, no, he's going to ask us about Pictish. Um, <laughs> thanks, Mara. Um, I am fairly certain that there are scholars, and I don't really know about them to know if um, how 
how accepted this view is, but that that Pictish would be considered as part of um, the sort of Brythonic branch. If we think of, you know, you've got one group that has sort of the Welsh and Breton and the other that has, or sorry, the Welsh and Cumbric and the other that has Breton and Cornish. I think Pictish is placed in there somewhere, but I am not sure. I, I, I would uh, I would tend to think that's also the um, impression I've gotten from from talking to to Celticists, but it's also very much not my not my area either. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Pictish is kind of this, yeah, fascinating. So just for those who you know, uh, Pictish is sort of like way far north in Scotland, you know, like like Aberdeen and you know that that kind of region is kind of what we mean when we talk about the Picts. So. Um, and then uh, Gabriel's asking uh, a sort of a related question of how close is Britonic to modern Welsh, Cornish, and, and, and Breton? My, okay, so my first, my first answer will be I don't know, because um, I don't know how exactly, I don't know the specifics of them well enough. Um, my impression is, is that it's fairly close to Welsh, um, only Welsh has been greatly affected um, itself by the presence of um, Latin. I think that I even have a quote somewhere saying that Welsh has basically um, sort of become a, a Roman, a romanticized um, Celtic language. Um, but when you look at um, some of the larger texts that cover Welsh history and inscriptions and things like that, um, they um, they seem to be considering, I think, kind of a continuum. But I am I would want to look at the the, the sources again. Um, but that seems to be the closest. Uh, can, yeah, I was just going to say too that if anybody um, wants to follow up with these, like I have a, a huge list of sources and documents and things like that that I can always send or suggest or give to people. Uh, well, maybe that's related then to Sparrow's question. So I'm jumping around the questions a little bit uh, thematically, uh, but she's asking it would be great to see a list of these place names um, if that's if that's possible. Um, I have, you know. A, a, a sleep-inducing number of them in my uh, paper, so um, I could always um, send you that. They're not; it's not conveniently laid out. Um, putting it into a table, I don't think would have helped my case. Um, but I could send, um, you know, the sort of case studies from my paper, or um, there's a few books basically that cover most of it, except for, you know, the papers that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years about individual place names. Um, all right, yeah, Spro says she can, uh, she'll email, <laughs> email you about that. Um, uh, Joe is asking, uh, I think he's asking about the map you've got up here on display, because uh, he's saying the curious thing about this map is that the lines cut across the rivers um so uh well actually maybe 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 this would be a good moment to explain then you know what, what you know what's going on with that, with that map just in you know give us a give us an impression 
Um, okay, so the map here is taken from Jackson. Um, Jackson was a scholar of sort of um, one of the big writers about this early um, Britonic and Roman um, time period and wrote a lot about um, uh, sorry I'm trying to think of how to describe it. I mean I guess about about the history of the sort of Britonic people and um, places things like that so what this map is shows uh, river names that are known throughout Great Britain. So river names often seem to have a longer life than um, other place names. Um, so they often sort of give us forms or, or give us an idea of um, who is sort of maybe naming these things early on. Um, so region one here is the place where there's the fewest sort of Celtic river names. This has been occupied by other groups for a long time. Names have been changed. Um, and this is the sort of area that we think of, I think probably first when we think of the sort of settlement of other groups. Um, region two is the places that there are more um, Celtic river names. Um, and again, this is just sort of shifted over. This is probably the second area that we that I would think of as occupation, things like that um, being more likely. Um, so in a way you're sort of uh, traveling across or traveling, um, seeing, um, going to areas that are, are less likely to have been changed or occupied by an incoming group. So if we look on the other end of the sort of spectrum here, four, um, Oh, I realized I made a mistake. I stated something wrong earlier, but uh, I was looking at four down the sort of southern peninsula here and, and said Welsh, whereas that's Cornish. Um, but so four here are areas that were sort of much uh, less likely to have been sort of occupied by the Romans or people. They, they sort of were more successful in maintaining their boundaries. Um, and they also happen to be two groups of Celtic speakers and the areas there are generally still keep the old Celtic names. Um, and then three is, you know, the, the penultimate of that type of thing. Um, they are longer, they, they stayed non-Roman, non-Germanic longer, but eventually sort of um, were mostly taken over. Um, but so it just shows sort of a history or um, a continuum of Celtic place names and how the sort of density and of them change across the continent, um, across the island based on sort of the probably original naming and who came in afterwards. I don't know if that was a very concise way. So then, so following up from that, then Joe is asking uh, about: Do we know, you know, these so these lines, these these sort of you know zones, sort of cross cut these rivers? Uh, do we know, you know, does that imply that the languages weren't spreading along rivers? If and if that's the case, why not? You know, we, we expect language to travel up rivers by boat. Um, yeah. That okay. So yeah, that's a good question, and I'm not sure. Um, I've looked at this map a hundred times. I don't actually know that the, I think the lines across here may not necessarily reflect the rivers, the larger rivers that they cross. 
Um, like, I don't know at what point a river name might change. So if a river ends in region one, and people are knowledgeable about that river, they might generally think of the name as going all the way to sort of its origins, though, you know, so I think it was, I can never pronounce, is it the Thames um, in one, maybe sort of the Thames all the way up. Um, other smaller rivers in region two might have more Celtic um, names. Um, so I'm not sure that the cross, what I'm trying to say is I'm not sure that the crossing of a river um, that's big enough to be on this map reflects that that particular river um, because there's a million river names um, in there there's just too many to show on a map um, river names are it's are kind of its own separate piece of this um, and sometimes gets studied completely by itself um, there's a, a 900 page book in German on just the river Thames name, I believe, um, by Forster. So I don't, I don't think I answered that well, but I, I think it might not be as, yeah, I'll be quiet. Oh, uh, we've got more coming in on rivers. Okay. Uh, uh, so there's uh, a <laughs> Sparrow's asking Hara, um, sorry, I had trouble reading this for some reason. Um, are there, are there rivers that you know of uh, with different names from different languages? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so do you know of languages that, uh, any rivers that have changing names along their waterway? Do you, do you have any examples of that? I don't, I, I don't, I don't know of any that have a changing name along the sort of main waterway, but it seems like all of the sort of tributaries and things like that end up, you know, many of those have distinct names. Um, I don't know that that's much very different than how we would expect it elsewhere. I'm actually, I don't know. Um, the conventions around river, river naming are, are a mystery to me. Um, and they have a long history, I think, and they tend, like I mentioned before, they tend to change more slowly. Um, there's reasons that people have given for why river names and certain ge geographic place names might change differently. Uh, I don't know that it's uh, a real science or if it's just a lot of observations that people have made about particular areas. Uh, well, I mean, so <laughs> bearing those caveats in mind, Sparrow is uh, uh, asking if, so do we have, do we then have cases where like the, the main branch is in one language and then the, the tributaries are, are in other languages? Oh, um, I... I can't think of an example, but I think that we probably do. Um, especially, you know, in region one, the may, the large rivers may or may not have Celtic names, um, but you only have to find one non-Celtic name probably for a large river, and you're probably gonna find Celtic names for some of the smaller tributaries because, and this is an anecdote too, I think it's less likely that you're gonna change a small little stream going into a big river um, or I can imagine it being less likely that that would be a there'd be a change right there, um, unless somebody came along and was like, let's rename this you know little stream here. Um, but now I'm just it's just my imagination. 
All right. And uh, well, there's one one last question I see here um, that maybe maybe you've already kind of talked about this to an extent because uh, this I think came in earlier on in your discussion. But uh, is, you know, how dark are the Dark Ages? Uh, so we presumably don't have that much writing, but has archaeology uncovered useful information in the last few decades uh, that can help with with your language work? I think I think they are less dark than. Um than we've always sort of, or maybe not we, but like the way I grew up thinking of the Dark Ages, well, nobody knows. It was just a mystery. Um, and on the other end was was civilization. Um, I think that there's a few factors there that, yeah, there are periods where there are fewer texts. Um, there are periods where the the archaeology is just not as clear, but it's not necessarily that the, that the ground is more churned up or anything. It's that people looking at it haven't come up with the right way of categorizing, analyzing, modeling, um, talking about these things. I think the ground is probably just as capable of revealing elements of human patterns as the period before and after it. Um, we just don't yet know. Those haven't been as interesting to people. And that's probably part of it too, that you know, the Roman Empire and other things were, were big and grand and people want to know more about it. Um, sifting through, you know, f uh, the occasional bare settlement for the 50 years of your life to come up and say, yeah, they generally ate more legumes than pea or peas might be legumes, I don't know. Um, it doesn't have the same glamour and therefore these periods may have been a little bit more neglected. Um, you know, people want gold, I feel like, and the ordinary day-to-day -day stuff gets a little bit neglected. So I think over time, we're gonna sort of start to fill in these areas more um, with the real living stuff, like with the more information about real life and not just elites. Um, it'll just take time. Great, thank you. Uh, I, I don't see any more questions here. Uh, apologies if I missed anybody. I, I don't think I did, but um, apologies if I did. Uh, so thank you, Sean, uh, for uh, for well for a very excellent thesis. I, I really enjoyed supervising it and reading it and um, seeing it all come together. And for your uh, for your theater here and your uh, your answering all everyone's questions, uh, difficult questions from the from the Picts to river names to to everything in between. So um, I, yeah. I think that there's more, to, there's probably a lot more to be said about the river names. There are books that I couldn't find, um, but so if Sparrow wants to write to me, we could talk about it. Um, and yeah, I, and I would like to thank everybody who, who came and watched um, and to thank you, Nelson, for being incredibly helpful and supportive. Um, yeah. My pleasure. All right. Well, I think then we will wrap this up. Um, we will. We, there are further conversations to be had, more rivers to be to be sailed up. Um, but we'll do that uh, on another time.